Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema because that's the kind of films I love the most. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the 2003 film Memories of Murder by Bong Joon-ho. It's based on the true story of the Hwaesong murders that occurred in South Korea in the 1980s and early 1990s. Ten women were brutally killed by a serial killer who evaded capture for over 30 years. At the time that the film was released, the case was actually unsolved. But just recently, this year in 2019, a suspect was identified through DNA technology. Now, he will not be tried for these murders because the statute of limitations for them have run out. But he is already in prison for another murder. In this episode, I update you on all of that and I talk about the suspect and what appears to be the solving of this case. And I also talk about the original murders. I talk about Bong Joon-ho's process of making this film. I discuss specific themes of the film that I find compelling, like the way it looks at the abusive actions of the police officers in the film, and how for me, really, this story is about violence against women. I talk about my own interest in true crime as well. I do talk about the ending, so there are spoilers in this episode. If you have not seen the film, it will be spoiled for you if you listen to this episode. And it should be obvious, but I just want to tell you, I talk about difficult subjects in this episode, like rape, violence, sexual assault, murder. These are very dark and difficult themes. If you're not comfortable with those things, I suggest that you not listen to this episode. Her Head and Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis. And you can access rewards and extras like bonus episodes and merchandise. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Teal, J.D., Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much. If financial support is not an option for you, and I definitely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. If you write a review, I'll read it in a future episode. You can tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you can just interact with me in a positive way on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Her Head and Films and I should pop up. You can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So I won't go on anymore. Here is my episode about Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder. So there was a really interesting coincidence with me covering Memories of Murder at the time that I chose to. 
I had actually planned on covering memories of murder in September of 2019. I ended up getting a cold earlier in the month, and so I had to delay the episode and not do it. I had already started researching and reading things and all of that and even started watching the film, but then when I came down with my cold, I just was not able. I didn't have the energy and just did not have the ability to record the episode. And it turned out that that was a really good thing (laughs) because around the time that I'm supposed to cover Memories of Murder, this huge news comes out that the original murders that the film is based on that had gone unsolved for over 30 years, the news broke in South Korea that a suspect had been identified through DNA. So this case, this string of murders that most people thought would never be solved and that they would never know who did this, and it had baffled so many detectives for so long, all of a sudden, we may know who did it. And it was stunning news. I came across it online, and I could not believe it, especially the timing of me doing all this research about memories of murder, and then this happens. Like There are so many eerie coincidences that happen with the podcast sometimes, and it really freaks me out. Like, just when I'm about to cover a film, this this news breaks? It really shocked me. So I was actually really glad that this episode got delayed, and now I'm recording it, and I can talk about this development, and I will go into it in more depth in a moment. But before I get into the film, I do want to give you some background information, mainly about this string of murders, some of the information about the suspect, and also Bong Joon-ho's experience of writing the film, making the film, researching it, and all kinds of stuff like that. Because I think it's important. Obviously, if you're listening, you've probably seen Memories of Murder. I hope you have, because it will be spoiled for you otherwise. And you probably know that it's based on a true serial killer case in South Korea in the 1980s. These murders are known as the Hwai Song serial murders. And I do apologize if I'm not saying that right, but I couldn't find any kind of pronunciation for it. The murders happened between 1986 and 1991. Hwai Song is a sort of rural town outside of Seoul, South Korea. It's a very rural area. There is not a ton of information about these killings, at least not here in America or with or with English sources. Like, I'm sure it's been written about a lot in South Korea, but I could not find a lot of English language sources that went in-depth about the crimes. Like, there's no true crime book about it the way there might be about, like, Ted Bundy or BTK or, you know, the Zodiac Killer or something. So I didn't, I wasn't able to find a ton of information specifically about the murders that went into a ton of detail. I mainly relied on the Wikipedia page. Wikipedia lists 10 victims and they ranged in ages. The women were bound, they were strangled, 
often sexually assaulted and murdered. And this was an explosive case in South Korea when it was happening. And I'm sure it haunts the country to this day. I would imagine that this, that these killings are sort of similar to like the Zodiac here in the U.S. That's a really big unsolved serial killer thing. And I would imagine that this is sort of similar for that country where it's like this very traumatic thing and haunts the region especially. I did find a little bit of information on CNN. It mentioned that all the victims were strangled to death. Often a piece of their clothing was used to strangle them. The CNN piece says that like stockings or a blouse was often used. In some cases it says quote the victim's genitals had been severely damaged unquote. So there was mutilation that happened to these bodies. There was sexual assault. There was rape. There was strangulation. These were profoundly violent and horrific killings in the rural area of Hwaisong. And it really terrorized that region. And then it seems like the killing stopped. Nobody knows why. It's not clear. This string of murders really haunted the region for over three decades until the recent breakthrough. There was a massive investigation to try to catch this man. Over 21,000 people ended up being investigated. They really obviously searched for him, tried to find him, but just weren't able to. Sometimes you just don't have the clues. It reminds me a little bit of BTK in the way that he eluded the authorities for so long. And sometimes that is what happens, unfortunately, that they cover their tracks so well. And I'm going to talk in a little bit about my own interest in true crime, why I'm name dropping these people, because ever since I was a child, I have had a true crime obsession. And I want to talk about that for a moment, but that will be later on. So the thing about this case that's even more interesting is that even if they found the the suspect, and it seems that they have, They cannot prosecute him because the statute of limitations for these murders ran out. They ran out in 2006. So this person, the suspect that they found, will not face any kind of charges if he is the serial killer. And that's a really unfortunate part of this case. So I do want to give a little bit of information about this suspect. And I found this on The Guardian. And of course, all my sources will be listed in the show notes of the episode. I do that with every episode. It's really important to me to always cite my sources, to always quote and all of that. Like there's been some controversy recently with the podcast stuff. I think there was a true crime podcast that was not really citing its sources properly. And I just think it's always important to do that. So The Guardian said, quote, Using the latest forensic techniques to retrieve DNA, officers have identified Lee Chun J, 56, as a suspect in at least three of the killings, unquote. So there was a, some kind of DNA sample on one of the victim's underwear, and that is what they matched to, to this subject, Lee Chun J, who is now in his 50s. The interesting part is he's actually already in prison. He was put in prison for life for murdering his sister-in-law in 1991. Now, Lee Chun-jae denies that he is the Hwaisong serial killer. 
Um, he denies that he was involved in them, but some of his DNA has been matched to the victims. That's pretty powerful evidence that he at least killed some of them. And I guess that would lead us to believe that he killed all of them. But I don't know all the details and the specifics. It was hard to find a lot of specific information from sources that are reputable. I tend to believe that the Guardian does a decent job with the with information and so I was trying to find sources that were reliable for this. It's interesting to note that he got put in prison in 1994 and we know that these serial killings ended around 1991 so that could be a reason why they stopped. He got imprisoned. He got caught for another crime and so the the serial murders ended but it seems like they do have the person and it's modern technology that allowed them to find him and it was DNA that he left behind on one of the victims. So I just want to talk a moment. This film, while it's not a true crime film, it's based on a true crime. And that is what drew me to the film originally, because I have an interest in true crime, and it's very intense. Since I was a child, I've watched true crime shows. I was always obsessed with them. I was watching Forensic Files. Like, I really love the forensic shows from the 1990s. I actually still watch them obsessively. When I'm tired or I'm having a bad day, I put on like Forensic Files or The New Detectives or even Unsolved Mysteries. I love the Robert Stack episodes. I grew up on that. I was born in 1989. So I really grew up at a time when forensics and DNA and true crime were kind of popular and people were becoming more interested in forensics, I think. A&E, I don't know if any of you know that channel. I used to grow up watching a lot of shows on A&E. They had American Justice, The Cold Case Files, and City Confidential. And I still love those shows even now. I sometimes I'll look for episodes on YouTube and I'll watch them. So true crime has been part of my life. I used to watch serial killer documentaries. I used to be very interested in serial killers. And I also used to read a lot of true crime books when I was younger, like by Aphrodite Jones. I, I read quite a bit of Aphrodite Jones when I was younger. So I don't focus as much on serial killers anymore. I've really shifted my focus where I'm a true crime, I guess, person who is more interested in victims and the stories of victims. And I'm not interested in the killers or glorifying them. Like I am turned off by people who sort of glorify murderers. I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in hearing the victim stories personally and women's stories, right? Because true crime is dominated by women. Women are the primary consumers of true crime and they are the primary victims who are focused on in the world of true crime. And thinking about memories of murder, I, I just wanted to talk about true crime. I know it's not directly... I don't know if it's like directly important, I guess, but I just wanted a space to talk about it because obviously Bong Joon-ho would not have made this film if he himself were not interested in this, in this true crime, in this serial killer, in this, you know, set of murders. 
he did it because he was obsessed. He was interested in it or fascinated by it. And I'll get into everything that happened when he was making this film and what led him to it and all of that. So he, in a way, was obsessed with a true crime. And so I just think it kind of, I wanted to just have this discussion about it. It's like, why is there this true crime discuss? this true crime obsession. There's a lot of hand-wringing about it, which is weird to me. But I will say that I think a lot of people are interested in true crime because you're looking at darkness. I think it's something impenetrable and it's something incomprehensible for regular people who are just living like normal, non-violent lives. I don't want to kill anyone. I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't want to inflict violence on anybody and I certainly don't want violence inflicted on me. And so I think there is a part of us that wonders, how does a person do this? This is the ultimate act to take another person's life. And there are people who do it for sport. There are people who do it for pleasure. And I think for so many of us, that is incomprehensible. But in a weird way, we're attracted to the incomprehensible. Like maybe we think, well, if we keep watching these shows, if we read these books, we'll finally get it. We'll finally understand it. But of course, you never can. It's just not possible. And the way that true crime works or even things that are not true necessarily, but like mysteries, you know, mystery books or shows that are about mysteries, you get consumed by them and you get interested in how the case will be solved, how the detectives find the murderer, how the victims get justice. So there's just something very profound about that, that you get wrapped up in this very human drama. It's just, it it can be consuming and you want to unravel the mystery and you want to know what happens. And it can kind of, it can take you out of your everyday life in that way. And that may be why people watch a film like Memories of Murder, which is a crime film. That's what it is. And it takes you out of your life. You get transported into this world of rural South Korea in the 1980s. And this man who is stalking these women and killing these women. And you want to know who did it. So it's this mystery that you want to solve. And for me personally with true crime, I feel a connection to the victims and I want to hear their stories. That's really important to me. I have not been through any kind of violence or anything like that. But I have been through loss and I have been through grief when I lost my father in 2006 and I was 16 years old and that was a really devastating loss for me. And so true crime, I was interested in it before he died and my dad was interested in it too. He used to watch forensic files at night and sometimes we would watch forensic shows together or crime shows together. So it's something I grew up on. So it's instantly comforting to me and nostalgic, especially if there's a show from the 1990s during my childhood. After he died, it took on a different importance for importance for me because it creates a space for grieving because often on these shows, the families are talking about the victims. They're talking about a daughter or a wife or a mother that they lost. They cry and they share their grief. There's something cathartic about that for me to see people sharing because you don't often get to share it or you don't often get to see it in everyday life. But you see it on these shows and you sort of bear witness to those people's lives and to the lives of the people that they've lost. You do feel that connection to the victims, whether it's real or not, or you know whether you think that's valid or not. It is the way that I feel when I watch the shows. But you know, I also think that 
true crime and mysteries, they're about more than just like a sordid interest. To me, it's often about larger systems, often about the breakdown of community, a sign of serious problems in society, like violence against women. And really, Memories of Murder, it's not just a crime film. It's about violence against women. These crimes are not being perpetrated against men. They're being perpetrated against women. And that's important. And women are interested in true crime because women have to live in patriarchal, misogynistic societies where they are victims of violence and they are vulnerable to violence, often from men that they trust and that they know. Now, the Hwai Song murders, obviously the victims did not know the perpetrator, and that's a pretty rare thing. Serial killers are rare, and also, like, stranger violence is quite rare. For women, we often know the men who violate and harm and kill us, unfortunately. And I just wanted to share some statistics about violence against women. These are for the United States. I don't know what they are in South Korea. I googled it and tried to find some statistics, but I found it very difficult to find them. But I would imagine that there is a similar thing happening where there is a great deal of violence against women there, just like there is here in the United States. There was a recent study that found that in 2016, the homicide rate for women grew by 21%, and that's the highest that it's ever been since 2007. Often, female homicide victims are killed by their husbands, their boyfriends, men that they know. And there's an article in CBS News, it said, quote, more than half of the women who were murdered in 2017 worldwide were slain by an intimate partner or family member. 82% of homicide victims targeted by intimate partners are women. In another CBS News article, it said, quote, For women, husbands, boyfriends, and family members are the most dangerous people in their lives and those most likely to seriously hurt or kill them, unquote. Quote, while men in general make up the largest percentage of homicide victims worldwide, 80%, women are far more likely than men to be targeted by intimate partners or family members, unquote. So violence against women, it's a problem worldwide. 30 years after the Song murders, women are still being murdered by men on a fairly regular basis. Thousands and thousands of women are dying every year around the world at the hands of men. That's the point I'm trying to make to you. The murders in Song could not happen without misogyny, without sexism, without a hatred of women. And I'll get more into that later when I'm talking about the film. This man hated women. There is no other way that you can mutilate a woman, that you can insert things into her vagina and into her body without hating women deeply. The hatred of women is at the heart of this for me. It's at the heart of true crime and it's at the heart of this film. Even though this film is not necessarily about the victims and that is a critique that I have, which I'll get into. Overall, I like this film, obviously, or I wouldn't be talking about it, but I have some a few issues with it and that's normal. It's still a very masterful film. The root of this, the root of the serial killings, 
The root of all this violence is a hatred of women. It is misogyny. We have to call it what it is. And too often in true crime, the structural is not called out enough. Patriarchy is not called out enough. We tolerate these murders of women. We tolerate violence against women. We tolerate rape and domestic violence. We tolerate it. When there's a terrorist act, all kinds of things happen. You know, 9-11 happened and look what came about as a result. We invaded countries. We started wars. You know, the spying, the surveillance, the demonization of Muslims, all these things happened. And yet every single day, women are beaten, raped, killed by men that they know, men that they don't know. They're killed because they reject a man. They're raped because they're walking home alone. This is the world that women live in. This is the world they fear. This is the women, this is the world they have to navigate and tolerate, you know, with their mace spray and their self-defense classes, hoping to God they don't become the victim. And it makes me mad. And I think about those women in Hwai Song in the 1980s, in the early 1990s, schoolgirls, older women, all kinds of different women who were just walking home or who were just living their lives. And this man came along and murdered them and raped them and mutilated them because he hated women and because he lived in a culture that tolerated a hatred of women, just like we live in a culture that tolerates this kind of violence against women. Because we could end it, it could stop, but it's not going to right? We're still fighting as women to be seen as human beings and to not be objectified and to not be harmed and violated and and murdered by men. I'll never stop being mad about it. And that's part of why I watch true crime, I guess, is because I want to hear women's stories. I want to bear witness to their lives. But more than anything, I just want it to change. And I know women around the world are fighting. Women in South Korea, women in the United States, all of us, you know, are fighting for a day when women don't have to live with this kind of violence against them. I know I went on a tangent. It may not seem related, but to me it is related because I see true crime. I watch Memories of Murder as a woman and a man watching Memories of Murder may not see it the same way, but I identify with those women in the rain and that could be me. That could be you as if you're a woman listening. It could be any of us. That just kills me. I hate it. It makes me mad. And I won't apologize for that anger. I just think as a woman watching the film, it's just terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying what those women went through. So there's all this hand-wringing about true crime and I get tired of it. I get totally tired of it. Oh, is it okay to watch true crime? Is it okay to read true crime? To me, it feels sexist because anytime that women like something, anytime women are interested in something, there's auto, it's automatically denigrated and devalued. It's automatically seen as lesser than. It's automatically seen as frivolous and shallow because women gravitate to it or are interested in it. I'm tired of people shaming women for being interested in true crime. I'm just tired of all these hysterical think pieces about how unethical it is. People have been reading about crime for centuries, all the way back to the 1800s and Jack the Ripper. And then you have the golden age of crime novels. Think of Agatha Christie. I don't see the same concern over things that men are interested in or things that matter to them. 
Women are interested in true crime because every day we have to live with a certain amount of fear that a man that we interact with, a man that we reject, a man who sees something about us and wants to hurt us actually could. That's what we live with. That's what so many women live with is that their husbands, their fathers, their boyfriends, their neighbors, whatever, want to hurt them or kill them and that it could actually happen to them. That is a very real possibility in women's lives. And I think a lot of women listen to true crime or read true crime because they're looking for the signs, right? They're looking for ways that they can avoid it. I mean, whether that's possible or not. Also, I think they care about the victims because they see that those women, they could be those women. They could be that woman in that story. That could happen to you. That could happen to me. And so maybe this true crime, it's a way to not be so terrified, you know, to engage with the subject in a way that's a little bit safer. So onto the film. I know I went sort of on a tangent, but to me, it's important. Bong Joon-ho and the making of this film. I want to talk about it for a minute. I read some of this book called Bong Joon-ho by Jung Ji Yoon, who was the editor of the book, and learned a lot um, in the process. Bong Joon-ho recently has become lauded, right? He just won the Palme d'Or for his film Parasite. Memories of Murder was a crucial film in his career, but the thing is, is that he did not start off great. His first feature film was not uh, a really big success. Barking Dogs Never Bite is what it was called. It didn't do great at the box office, um, according to this book. And so he has to sort of recalibrate after that failure. And he decides that because he's been interested in crime films and for a lot of his life, that he's going to focus on a crime and put that into a film. And that's how he ends up making Memories of Murder. And that's his second feature film. It's extremely successful when it comes out in 2003. In Korea, six million people saw this film. The film brought him international acclaim. He chose to focus on the Hwaesong murders because of his own interest in crime films. Now, according to an interview in this book, he spent many months researching the film. And he did a lot of his own original research. He spoke to detectives, to people who lived in the area during the murders, to reporters who covered it. He was on the ground interviewing these people, talking to them. And I think he took it really seriously, like the ethics of making this film about a really traumatic incident in in the history of South Korea, right? He takes it extremely seriously. Many of the things that happened in the film were real and were based on real accounts. Some were not. So it's a mixture of fact and fiction, like most films, right? Not every single thing is going to be what exactly happened. Some things that were true is that there were victims that reported women who survived this this man and were able to get away. There were victims that reported that he had very soft hands. That detail is true. Some of the victims did have items inserted into their vaginas and into their bodies, unfortunately. That is true. There was a real incident where a mentally handicapped person did get hit by a train after being interrogated by police, which happens in the film near the end. So that was also inspired by a true story. So those are just a few examples. And Bong's research really became all-consuming. He says that he was deeply 
emo- deeply invested in the case and very emotionally invested in it. At times, he even sort of had delusions that he might catch the killer. <laughs> it took a real toll on him. He said that at one point he received these strange calls that scared his wife where the caller was asking if he was working on a film about the Huaisong, the Huaisong murders even though this information was not widely known because he was just in the beginning stages of the film. He was working on the script and doing research. So how did this person know that? He said that if a stranger came on set while they were filming, he would feel scared or unsettled by it. I I think he was worried at times that maybe the killer was after him. I mean, I think he says that in the interview. And I think that's just an example of sort of how emotionally draining this experience was for him. That he sort of had some of these, this paranoia or these delusional thoughts that like, oh, I'll catch the killer or the killer knows what I'm doing. I mean, if the man that they've caught for it really was the one who did all of the the killings, he was already in prison when Bong Joon-ho was making this film. Like, he he had been put away in 1994. But it just shows you how wrapped up he got in it, how it haunted him, how obsessed he became with the story. And he, I think on some level, thought the killer might see the film. And I think that plays into the ending, which I think is probably one of the greatest endings ever and I'll definitely talk about it in detail. So our cast, I just want to go through our cast and characters. There's Park Dooman who is the main detective and he's played by Song Kang Ho. There's Seo Tae-yoon who is the new detective that comes in and he's from the big city of Seoul and he obviously has more experience with very violent crimes. I mean, Park, you know, Park Dooman is, and I apologize about the pronunciation of these names. It's, I've done my best with them. So Park Dooman is like a rural police officer, right? He's like a local police officer who probably doesn't have a ton of experience with murders in that area. Whereas Seo Taeyoon, played by Kim Sang-kyung, has much more experience with violent offenses, probably, and with murder. There's Cho Young Koo. He's the detective that beats people a lot. He's almost like a caricature, I think, in this film. He's He kind of brings comic relief at times. It's weird how funny this film is occasionally. And it's I think like the ineptitude of the police really creates humorous situations that you just like laugh at their idiotic stuff that they do because it's just nuts some of the things that they do. There's Bake Kwong Ho who is mentally handicapped and he's one of the first suspects. And then there's Park Hyun Ju and he is sort of the final suspect. He's very young and quite beautiful and he has like these he has the soft hands and and all of that. And he's sort of their most powerful suspect where they really think that he did it. They're sort of convinced that he did it. So I'm going to go through and just talk about different themes of the film and and different things like that. First, I do want to linger on this opening of the film because it's very interesting. And it opens in 1986 
we see a child in this yellow field and there are these children playing nearby and it all looks incredibly bucolic and beautiful. To me, that's always the jarring thing about crime is like the darkness lurking under everyday life in places that seem idyllic and there's that darkness that's lurking in people too. So what's interesting is the way that the opening, like the beginning and the ending of the film, obviously um, bookend each other. And they bookend each each other in very specific ways. They do so with the location and also the colors. The way that the films look at the beginning and the end are very different than the way they look in the middle with the colors. Because at the beginning and the end, you have like the yellow fields. You have the big blue sky. You have these incredibly bright colors near that drain pipe where one of the bodies is found at the beginning. And in the middle, the colors are muted and dreary and dark. It's like grays and uh, like dark greens and very muted colors throughout much of the film. And then you have like this burst of color at the beginning and the end. And we're immediately introduced to the one of the main characters really he is the main character and that's park Duman. you know this detective he arrives at the site like on this tractor so you already have a sense of like oh this is a rural area this is like these are cops who probably don't have a ton of experience with these types of crimes and park shows up and he goes over to the drain pipe and we see this woman who's in it she's dead she's naked she's bound in this drain pipe and there are ants that crawl all over her hands that's like a very visceral image for me that i remembered from this film the little boy is right there you know there's this dead woman and then there's this little boy and it's a jarring juxtaposition it's just a jarring scene honestly and the little boy is watching the detective and starts to repeat everything that he says obviously this little boy and the children playing nearby they have no understanding of the gravity of the situation that here is a dead woman and then at the end park will return to that drain pipe and he will get the information The big scene will happen and I'll talk about all that when I get there. But it's just very interesting to think about the way that these scenes echo each other, are related to each other, connected, and the way that they bookend the film. I wanted to talk about the representation of the place in this film because it's very interesting. It's very different than what you see in a lot of like American films. In American films, the police tend to be valorized and they tend to be the heroic good guys, right? And it was so different the way that the detectives were portrayed in memories of murder and it really stuck with me and I also think that the the police are in this film they're very much an extension of the government too they're very much an extension of state power and government power they're they are completely inept as as a police department it's shocking I mean it is the 1980s so it's a different world than it is now but park And I'm going forward, I'm going to go, I'm going to call him Park. That's our main detective, Park Duman. He thinks that he can look at someone and tell if they're a killer. Like he's going totally off instinct instead of like reality and evidence. There is a great deal of police brutality and violence 
They beat suspects. They get false confessions out of them. They are just completely impotent in a lot of ways. And they have to use like this brute violence in order to accomplish anything, which is not much. They don't accomplish much at all. They deploy a lot of dirty tricks and tactics to get false confessions from the suspects. They take advantage of the mentally handicapped uh, young man in this film who becomes a suspect, you know, they beat him and all kinds of things like that. These detectives really come off as desperate and like ill-informed and they really are as violent as the men that they're trying to put away. You know, who are the police and who are the criminals in this film? Often it seems like they bleed together a lot of the time. There is an important historical context to this film and Bong Joon-ho talked about it in that interview from that book I mentioned. People who in that book wrote essays about memories of murder talked about it as well. There was a military dictatorship in the 1980s in South Korea. There was a great deal of state repression of protesters of any kind and of like any dissent. It was not tolerated. There was torture of, you know, these student protesters and things like that. And a writer who I really love and she's gotten a lot of fame is Han Kang. She has a really famous book called The Vegetarian. She also has a book called Human Acts that I thought was really powerful. It takes place in South Korea. It's about a lot of violence that happened during a student uprising, a student protest in the city of Gwangju, South Korea in 1980. And that um, that book really speaks to the the military dictatorship at the time, the violence against ordinary citizens, the violence against students and protesters. It's a powerful book. And she also has a book called The White Book that's really good. I've read a lot of her work just because I, I think she's a great writer. So if you're looking for a Korean author, I definitely do recommend Han Kang. I wouldn't be surprised if she won the Nobel Prize for Literature one day. I mean, I just think her work is really important. So this is a very tumultuous time in South Korean history. There is a darkness that hung over the country and that seeps into the film. So I think that the police in this film function as like an extension of that state power and that government power where you have these excesses and this violence that's going on at the governmental level and the state level and then that sort of bleeding into into this film I think and to the local authorities and the way that they abuse their power. You know many of the suspects are in this film are those who don't fit in society. They're people who act strange or might have a handicap or are poor. And, you know, these are people who are particularly vulnerable to state intervention and they lack any kind of protection from it. That was interesting to me, the way they latched onto the mentally handicapped young man, Bake Quang Ho, the way that they really were obsessed that Quang Ho was the murderer and it was clear he was not and in the end he actually was a witness to the murder they've spent all this time beating him and attacking him and traumatizing him when what they had was a witness somebody who could give them more information and he ends up getting hit by a train he ends up walking in front of a train and dying before they can get a lot of information out of him about the killer i mean here they have someone who saw him 
but they can't get a lot out of it. Quang Ho was not the killer. You know, that's, that's really obvious. So you can't just look at somebody and tell if they are a murderer. But there are a lot of people who think that. They think they can tell someone's a killer by how they look. You know, you always hear about these people who are shocked when they find out that a neighbor or someone who's attractive is a killer. You know, think about Ted Bundy and the whole like obsession with Ted Bundy and how good looking he was and how articulate he was and smart. There's no way to visually discern a murderer from anyone else. <laughs> they're ugly, they're handsome, they're short, they're tall. They're, there is no manual or way for you to tell, oh, this person, this person might kill his wife. Oh, this person might kill someone. There's really no way of knowing. There can be red flags and things like that, like domestic violence and, you know, things like that. But you can't visually tell. There are... <laughs> There are all kinds of of people who end up committing crimes. They don't necessarily look a certain way. But in the 1980s, we didn't have DNA at that point. I mean, it was in its infancy. There was not a lot of forensic resources that these detectives had. And so they just fell back on this ridiculous premise that they could just look at somebody. And there is a point in the film where Park, uh, the main detective, he sees two men and one was the victim, one was the perpetrator in the attack. This is a separate thing from the murders. One of, I think his superior or something asks him, like, which one do you think's the victim? Which one do you think is the perpetrator of the cro- of this crime between these two men? And he couldn't tell. And we as an audience can't tell either. Like, we're looking at them and we're thinking, wow, which one's the victim? Which one's... He, he's going by this instinct and this intuition that he can't even quantify he can't even explain and it's not even reliable right he's just going off like something magical inside himself i guess where he thinks he can tell a murderer from a normal person and it's just not true it's not based on reality it's not based on evidence the thing about this film is that its primary focus is on the investigation it is on the search for the killer the failed search for the killer this is really a film about failure right from the beginning it is about failure it's about the failure of the police to find this person, the failure of the community to protect these women. But that is the main focus of the film is the detectives, these three main detectives, Park and the one from Seoul, and then the one who likes to beat people up constantly. It's about them trying to find him, trying to stop the killings when they can't. You know, that that is the main focus of the film and the main priority. And we do occasionally see the victims. We do occasionally see the women in the fields bound and, you know, ants crawling on them. We do see some imagery of that. It's not a graphic film by any means, and I was thankful for that. It didn't show any kind of sexual stuff. It did not eroticize the violence against these women. It did not eroticize the rape or anything like that. I did think that it was responsible in the way that it handled showing that because film is a visual medium. You have to show something. You know, you are trying to represent something, but I think there are responsible ethical ways to do it, obviously. And I didn't think that the film came off salacious in the way that it uh, portrayed the women or anything like that. But I think that my, my one criticism of this film 
would be that the victims are never really represented as people. They're always corpses. We don't see the these women and who they were before they died. Their point of view is not particularly important to the film. It's obviously much more focused on the police investigation. All we get really is the one survivor that lives in that house and um, and she talks a little bit but she's not necessarily fleshed out or lingered on for a long time. They're just dead women and girls. They're nothing more than that really in this film. Other people may have different opinions about that. Obviously, the film is not interested in focusing on the women or focusing on the victims. It's interested in the investigation. But it is a criticism for me that we can't see these women as anything other than corpses, as anything other than dead bodies in a field. Watching the film for a second time, I had seen it for the first time like last year, I think. And I just noticed it with the second viewing. I was like, we really don't get a sense of who these women are. But that's not something unique to Memories of Murder. That's something that you see in a lot of films about serial killers or about murder. I mean, that's just the truth. The The filmmakers, and they tend to be male, they want to focus on the police. They want to focus on catching the killer and the excitement and the suspense. And that's what a crime film is. So my, my criticism could be unwarranted. Should I really be criticizing something that's not the focus of the film? This is a crime film. It's about the police. It's about the detectives. It's about the search for the killer. And I totally get that, that that is the, what the film concentrates on. I'm just saying, could there have been a way to make these women more fleshed out and more multidimensional and more real to us than just dead bodies in a rainy field? You know, I, I think that's worth lingering on. And I think that's worth asking when it comes to crime films or crime shows. You know, I would... Um, contrast it with a really, really exceptional show on Netflix called Unbelievable that I recently saw and that I can't recommend enough. And it is one of the best series I've seen in ages, one of the most feminist TV series that I've ever seen in that it is a crime drama, obviously. And if you don't know what it's about, you probably don't. It's about this young woman, Marie Adler, in the show who is raped in her apartment. And when she reports that rape to the police, they really start to interrogate her. They start to point out inconsistencies in her story. And they get her to a point where she recants what she told them and says that the rape didn't happen. And then it turns out that this man is a serial rapist and that he has raped other women in other states. And these two female detectives in another state different from Marie. They have their own cases of, of rapes that are happening and they try to find the rapist. They team up together to find the rapist. So it's about so many things. It's obviously about sexual assault. It shows the trauma that it does to victims, but it also shows what some victims have to go through when they report their rape to the police and the systemic failures that can happen to women because she goes through so much Marie does uh, because of the way that the police treat her and so I, I urge you to watch the film I don't not the film the series I don't want to give away a lot about it or anything like that just watch it and it's very powerful but what's unique about this series for me and exceptional and really feminist is the way that it centers the victims the way that it centers women it's 
just extraordinary in that way. It shows what really happens in the aftermath of a rape, going to the hospital, what a woman goes through with that, you know, what it's like to have to talk to the police and all of these really difficult things. It doesn't eroticize rape or eroticize violence um, or eroticize sexual violence, which you can see in a lot of films and TV shows, unfortunately. So it's just... It's just an exceptional show. If you're interested in something that really centers women and their experiences of sexual assault, then you need to see Unbelievable. But that would just be my main criticism with Memories of Murder. I love the film. It's certainly not, um, you know, deficient or anything because of my criticism, but it's just one thing that I noticed. Just wish that these female victims could have been given a little bit more space in the film that we could have gotten to know them a little bit better and that they could have been more than just corpses. And that just tends to happen in a lot of shows and films. The dead girl, they're, they're just dead women and they don't get to have a voice. They don't get to have a life on the screen beyond their murder. And it's unfortunate. So I have to be honest when I talk about a film and that is my main criticism of this one. And I also got to thinking about, you know, the survivors of this, of the Hawaii song, rapist, killer. It, there were some, it seems like there were some people that, that, um, survived the attack, um, that he may have just, he may have started as a rapist and then went on to murder. And so there were women out there who had survived him and escaped him. And then obviously the families of the victims. And you think about the added trauma all these years of him being out there and of this case not being solved, it sort of brought to mind for me like the Golden State Killer, which has become such a big case the last few years. What was so traumatic for the victims of that man, and he was both a rapist and a killer, was that he was free. He was out there and they didn't know where he was. He had not been called. He knew where they lived some of them who still lived in the homes. And that added a whole other layer of trauma and fear to their lives for so long, for decades. And I obviously the, the victims' families and all that in Hwai Song, I'm sure they had to live with that too of he's out there. We don't know where he is. We don't know if he's hurting more people. And that's just like terrible. The end of the film brings a potential suspect in Park Hyun Gyu. He's like a younger man. And he has like the soft hands and it's really possible that he could be the killer in the film. We're not quite sure. Throughout the film, the detective, Seo Taeyoon, Seo Taeyoon has been like really level-headed and he's not prone to like attacking suspects or anything like that. He's very deliberate in the way that he investigates because he has more experience than Park, for instance, right? But he really believes that this this guy with the soft hands is the killer. And he reaches his breaking point. And I think you see in the detectives, you see that obsession and you see the fury. The fury of their own fallibility. The fury of their own incompetence and failure. Because that's what these men are, these detectives in particular, are having to deal with. I think it's often why they resort to the violence and the torture at times, is the desperation that they feel. 
you know, that here they are, they're these men, and men are supposed to be powerful, and especially policemen, they're supposed to be able to solve these cases and get the bad guy, and they can't do it. They are complete failures as police officers and as men in this film. They cannot find the person who did it. They can't get a good confession. They can't, you know, they're investigating all these people, and as we know, over 20,000 people were investigated for this crime there was a massive search for him and nothing is coming together for them and you can feel the frustration you can feel the toll that it's taking on them it's almost similar a bit to me of like maybe the toll that it was taking on Bong Joon-ho in a way these in a way he is a director sort of takes on the role of the detective I mean, that's what he did, right? He went back, he interviewed witnesses, he interviewed reporters, interviewed people who lived in the area when the murders happened. He's almost reinvestigating the film as he's researching and working on the script. And then through making the film, it's like he's undergoing his own forensic investigation into this case. And he becomes both detective and director And it almost feels like the frustrations that we feel in these detectives, you know, the fury and the anger and the, the sadness and the desperation and the emotional volatility and the emotional emotional investment that these detectives feel in the case. It's almost like these are emotions that Bong Joon-ho himself is feeling and that he channels into these characters you know that they come to embody and represent some of his own emotions about the case the detective um starts beating hyun gyu you know the the man with the soft hands and he's beating him on the train tracks and it's interesting when as he's attacking him he he asks him are you human i thought that was a fascinating question that he says to him, are you human? And there's this huge tunnel that looms in the background of this scene. And it seems to be a fitting metaphor for this case. How it forces the police to really look into a void that they cannot make sense of. To look at a darkness that is almost all-consuming. And they can't put a name to it. They can't put a name or a face to that darkness that they are confronting. I mean, the, the detective, the CO, actually gets out a gun and he wants to kill this man. It, he has been pushed so extreme to this to this edge, right? To the edge of his own, like, humanity that he would actually kill somebody. And he wants him to confess that he's killed these women. And that's when Park shows up, the main detective, and gives him the DNA results. And this suspect is not the killer. The DNA does not match. And yet, he's still convinced that it's him. And it's not. He thinks there's a mistake. There's not. He didn't do it. But they have to accept their own failure. That the person they thought it was, or that they want it to be, is not the killer. And there's this scene where Park is like staring at the suspect for a long time after he's been beat up and all that. And he's like staring into his eyes, thinking that he can he can figure out if he's the killer just by looking at him. But he can't. He can't do it. He just doesn't know. And they let him go. He just disappears like into the darkness, into the tunnel. Because it's not him. It's not any of the men. It was none of the 20,000 
that they investigated. All the man hours they've put into it, all of the time, all of the energy, and they just want to find this person and they can't find him. Just that fallibility that you feel and how hard it is for them to cope with that, to accept that they are going to fail. They cannot find him. And I just want to linger on the ending because I do think that, I mean, in particular with this film, the last 20 minutes are crucial. And the last 20 minutes are like masterful. I mean, the whole film is building to this. And when I watched it the first time, I was just completely riveted, of course. So in the end, it goes to, it forwards, it fast forwards, uh, forwards to 2003, to the present day you know, at the time when the film was released. And we see Park with his family. He's married now to the girlfriend that he had back then. He has two children and he's not a cop anymore. He's not a police officer. He's a traveling salesman selling juicers. So it feels like to me, he probably got out of the police force after this case, after realizing that this is not probably the line of work that he needs to be in, right? So his job takes him back to Song. He returns to the road where he, where we first saw him at the beginning of the film. He goes to that drain pipe and he looks in. Of course, the dead woman that we saw is gone. It's just an empty drain pipe again. And it's all these years later. And as he's sitting there, a little girl comes by and asks what he's doing. She says that a while back, a man had been there just like him. And he said that he'd done something there and was revisiting it. And that was the killer, of course. So Park asks her what he looked like. She says that he just looked plain and ordinary. And that's when Park looks straight at the camera. And that is the end of the film, is him just staring into the camera. And this was not what I was expecting at all. And this is why I think that nobody should be told anything about this film when they go into it. Maybe the bare minimum. Oh, it's based on the Song murders, about a serial killer in South Korea. But nobody should be told about the ending. Because it is like a gut punch when you see it. When you see his face just staring into the camera. Staring at you right? Staring at you as a viewer. And it breaks that fourth wall, obviously. And there's a lot of different interpretations of that final scene. Is he staring at the killer who could be watching the film? Is it maybe a commentary on how the killer is an ordinary person just like Park? You know, that she can't, you know, when we're looking at Park, we're looking at just an ordinary average person. And the killer probably looks just like he does. You know, looks just as ordinary and normal and plain as he does. There's nothing unique about him and there's nothing unique about the killer. You know, she probably couldn't even do like a photo recreation of this guy. He's just an average, plain, ordinary person. Just like Park, right? Just like the detective. Just like us, the viewers. He doesn't look like anything. Now, of course, he's not like us because he murders people. And I want to go back to that book uh, that's called Bong Joon-ho by Jung Ji Yoon. And it's about, I think it was released shortly after, not after Memories of Murder, but I know it talks about the host. It came out like quite a few years ago. There's a chapter in it called Making Genre Films in the Third World, Memories of Murder and the Host, Genre and Local Politics by Hu Moon Young. That's what the chapter's called. And so when it comes to the ending, I was really struck by something that this writer said. Hu Moon Young 
writes, quote, You will ultimately have to face an incomprehensible emptiness at the end of it, as the puzzle becomes more and more meaningless and disappears completely at the last moment, unquote. And they're talking about the ending of the film, the this incomprehensible emptiness. And I thought that was a really fascinating way to describe the ending. There is an emptiness at the end of the film. There is a discomfort on the place of the on the part of the viewer, a, a discomfort with our own unknowing. We have to confront the not knowing. We have to confront that incomprehensible emptiness. We have to confront this void, this absence of resolution because it's a film that is not resolved. Most crime films are resolved. They put a bow on it at the end that we know who did this. We can go to sleep and with comfort and know that particular criminal, that particular killer is off the streets and was found and put away. At the end of Memories of Murder, we don't get that comfort. We don't get that reassurance that everything is right with the world, that justice has been done, the good guys have won, the bad guy has lost, that evil has not triumphed, violence has not triumphed or won. That's not what we get with Memories of Murder. We get the painful reality that this man is still out there. And in 2003, we didn't know if he was alive, if he was dead, if he was still killing, if he was put away, what had happened. So imagine as a viewer in 2003, right? Or hell, just last year when I was watching it and the suspect that we think did these killings had not been caught, had not been identified. So when Parks stares into that, you know, camera, it did feel like he could be staring at the killer. The killer could be watching. The killer could be one of those six million South Korean people who went to the movie theaters and saw memories of murder. He could be sitting there right in the dark staring at the screen and it's eerie and it's chilling to think about. Or maybe Park's looking at us saying, what are you doing? Have you found him yet? Like imploring us to keep searching. What are we going to do now? There's so many ways that you could interpret that stare and the way that he breaks the fourth wall. He's looking at us, the audience, right? That's interesting. His gaze is on us. Like the whole time we've been watching the film, we've been gazing at him. We've been watching him. But that gaze is returned to us as like a group, as a culture, as a society. It's almost like staring back at us and saying, I don't know, I think you could interpret it different ways. He puts that gaze at us. Like, now it's on us. Now the ball is in our court to find this person. His work is done as a detective. We're at the end of the film. It's done. He is done. He is not even a detective anymore. Now the ball is in our court. Now it's our responsibility to find this person and to make sure that he is stopped or that the victims have some kind of justice. And the look in his face and his eyes is one of anguish. Like maybe it's anguish over his own fallibility, his own failure. That here's this little girl who saw the killer and he couldn't find him. He couldn't stop him. And so there's like a torment in Park's face too of what he did not accomplish, what he was not able to do as a detective. And that was his one job was to find who did this and to stop them. And he could not do it. And so we stare into his eyes at the end of this film. We're looking at him and he's looking at us 
it's this very intense moment. I mean, I think it could be one of the greatest endings ever done. Like, I wasn't expecting it. It was shocking to me. It was chilling and and haunting. I mean, I still think it's haunting. And from what I remember, like, his eyes were kind of glistening. Like, he had tears kind of in his eyes. And what I love is the open-endedness of it, is that there could be so many different interpretations. And I'm sure people listening have their own interpretations or their own thoughts about it. But he failed those women. All of, the whole society failed these women because they created a society where women could be murdered in this way and who could be killed this way. They had items inserted into their vaginas. It was truly degrading. Pieces of a peach a ballpoint pen, a spoon. The misogyny is breathtaking. The amount of hatred one must have for women is appalling. And it must be massive, that hatred, for him to have done what he did to those women. And of course, that kind of hatred, the hatred of women, never gets talked about with these crimes. It never gets, it never gets spoken. It never gets put in those terms. And these women were failed all around. They were failed by the detectives, failed by their society. They weren't kept safe. They lived in a place where that kind of violence was possible and where it was tolerated. And that is happening worldwide on a huge scale every single day. And no woman is safe from it. In no country is a woman safe from it. And I just wanted to say that in this episode. It's important for me to to speak that and to use that kind of language to describe what these crimes were really about, which was obliterating and annihilating women and girls. Even though they have the suspect, possibly, and he probably is the killer now, and he's already in prison for a crime of a, of a murder of another woman that I'm sure he brutally killed. Even with all that, these women are still gone. These 10 women and girls are still gone. The families who loved them still have to live without them, even all these years later, 30 years later. It's still heartbreaking and it's still horrible. But I think that Bong Joon-ho gives us a really powerful, memorable, visceral film that's looking at so many things, you know, that looks at this violence against women, but also looks at this very dark time in South Korean history, a time of military dictatorship and state repression and state violence that really extends through these police officers, shows the torture and interrogation of suspects who are really vulnerable people who are targeted because of kind of what they look like and because they don't perfectly fit into society. They're sort of misfits or outcasts. So we see the danger of that, the danger of like a, the abuse of power. So I do think the film does a good job of showing some of that systemic stuff and showing you some of like the larger picture of showing you the, you know, this small province, you know, this rural town, and then a a bigger picture as well of what was happening with the government and the military dictatorship and all that in the 1980s. But really, I think at the end of the day, it's about the heart of darkness, right? I mean, that... That phrase by Joseph Conrad in that book remains relevant in a lot of ways, but that idea of the heart of darkness. And at the end of this film, I think maybe, is that what he's looking at when he looks into the camera? He's looking at this void, looking at the the heart of darkness, the thing that he couldn't crack, 
the thing that he couldn't solve, looking at the darkness of humanity, of how we do these despicable things to each other, how every day horrific, unspeakable things are done to people all around the world. Human beings do these things to other human beings. I don't think we'll ever understand it. It's totally incomprehensible. It's inconceivable, really. But we keep going back to that darkness and we want to decipher it. We want to know it or understand it. And maybe we think if that we can decipher it, that we can stop it, that we can find like, what is the root of this? How do we stop this? How do we prevent this? And we don't know. I think the big or or we don't want to do what is required to stop it. What it would require is to create a world that doesn't hate women, to create a world that is not sexist and misogynistic, that does not teach violence to men and boys and does not degrade and devalue women and girls, right? Like that's what would need to happen is to actually stop violence against women is to stop this, but that's not what we're willing to do. It happens around the world every day. I'm tired of it. I'm mad about it. And just seeing these women in this film just killed me. Just killed me. I think Bong Joon-ho handles it well, but it's still very difficult to watch, you know, to see that woman's hands bound with the ants crawling all over them, to see these women's faces, to see them splayed out on the ground, right? To see what what we do to people in this world. And yet I keep watching true crime and I keep watching crime films like this. Like it's so dark. It's so sad. It's so heartbreaking. And yet here I am consuming it constantly. Um, I get wrapped up in the the mystery of it, I guess, and solving that mystery and who did this and why did they do this. But sometimes even when you learn the why, you still don't understand why and you probably never will. So Memories of Murder. Very powerful film. I hope that you found my discussion of it valuable. These are just my thoughts and some of the things that, you know, I wanted to talk about. But uh, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.